At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hello and welcome to the Friday edition of the Battleground Ukraine podcast with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. The big news from the battlefield this week is that after more than nine months of extremely costly combat, the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut has finally fallen to Prigozhin's Wagner PMC. But is it a Pyrrhic victory that will ultimately cost the Russians dear? And at the same time, was this also the week that Ukraine won the war? That's the question being put by friend of the podcast, Phillips O'Brien, in the wake of the momentous news that the Biden administration has put in place a plan to provide Ukraine with F-16 fighters and, just as importantly, is firming up its support for Ukraine to take back all of its territory, including Crimea. We'll consider all that and also the extraordinary events in Russia's Belgograd, a region where anti-Kremlin fighters from the so-called Russian Freedom Legion have captured a cluster of villages and proclaimed a people's republic. Uh, but first, the news that Bakhmut has fallen. What, Saul, is the significance of this? Well, on the surface, of course, it's not good news for the Ukrainians, obviously. After all, President Zelensky has invested a certain amount of political capital in this by long insisting that the army would hold on to Bakhmut. And there are still denials, interestingly enough, even, even today, that the town has fallen. Ukrainian defense officials insisting that a bit of the town is still in Ukrainian hands. They're saying that their forces control an insignificant, uh, that's a quote from them, part of the southwestern Bakhmut city around the T0504 highway. But even if we accept that 99% of the built-up area has fallen, if not 100%, the question I suppose we have to answer is, does this matter? Now, Putin clearly thinks it does. He's congratulated both Wagner, which did the bulk of the fighting, and the regular military units that supported from the flanks. Much to Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin's disgust, of course, because Prigozhin has felt that his men have done all the fighting and the actual regular Russian army has done very little. He's gone on to state that his men will withdraw from Bakhmut to regroup on the 25th of May. Now, there's no indication, more importantly, that Russia's military has either the men or the material to push on from Bakhmut, particularly with Ukrainian forces making headway still to the north and the south and thus creating a dangerous salient. So what, apart from a destroyed city that Zelensky likened to Hiroshima, has Russia actually gained? A propaganda victory, of course, but that's about it. 
Yeah, if you actually look at the map, there really is a big bulge, uh, as you say, very perilous potentially for the Russians now. It's now their job to defend Bakhmut. And, you know, that's going to mean more casualties. They've already lost on the count to date at least 100,000 in and around the city since December, this is alone, or from the beginning of the year anyway, with 20,000 of those killed. That's coming from US intelligence, which tends to be on the conservative side. But these are catastrophic figures, aren't they? So they can't be sustained. And they've inevitably weakened Russia's ability to contain the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which was the point of the Ukrainians standing and fighting there in the first place. Now we'll come on to the counteroffensive inevitably later on. It must be any day now, surely. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say this is pretty much the definition of a Pyrrhic victory, and Russia may come to regret it. However, uh, it's also, uh, from the perspective of Prigozhin, pretty good news, isn't it, Saul? I didn't know if you saw that extraordinary video he did, a sort of victory video he put out the other day, of him standing in front of uh, a group of his men, artillery fire booming away in the background, holding the Russian flag and the Wagner flag, uh, declaring the victory, saying that the city has completely fallen. But in it, he thanks Putin. Uh, he's been pretty rude about Putin to date, but now he's rowing back on that and thanking him in very sort of obsequious terms for giving Wagner the honour of defending the homeland. But he also lays into the army big time, accusing Defence Minister Shoigu and the commander of all the Russian forces in Ukraine, Gerasimov, of treachery once again, and, and says because of them, five times more soldiers died in what he calls the Bakhmut meat grinder than were necessary. Uh, he says that the, this pair turned the war into a game for their own amusement, and he ends ominously by saying that they've got a list of those who helped them, i.e. Wagner, and those who supported our enemies. So he's going to be claiming the credit for this, um, which emphatically will not be presented uh, as a Pyrrhic victory by Russian state media, but as a great success, and he will be reaping the rewards. Yes, exactly right. Um, it's a win, I suppose, for Prigozhin, because he's been saying for so long he's going to take it. And of course, Wagner have been doing the most of the fighting, but they've also been doing most of the dying. Um, you know, it is a force, we imagine, that is now pretty hollowed out. He's not only talking about moving out on the 25th of May, he's also talking about moving out of the whole frontline system, uh, certainly by June, the end of June, and then resting and regrouping. And that will give you an idea of how shattered and hollowed out his forces must be. So he's got a propaganda victory, but at what cost for both Wagner and also the wider Russian military? Well, we're going to discover that in the next few weeks, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, good point. Now, turning to the news about the F-16s, uh, what America has actually promised is to help train Ukrainian pilots and not to stand in the way of other countries donating these fourth-generation fighters to Ukraine. There's quite a lot of them about in uh, various uh, European armed forces. Um, when asked at the recent G7 summit in Japan whether sending F-16s to Ukraine would be, as the Russians had suggested, a colossal risk, Joe Biden responded with a dismissive, it is for them. Good old Joe, good comeback. But this is a big deal, Saul, isn't it? I mean, according to, to Phil O'Brien, who's the professor of strategic studies at St. Andrews University in Scotland, he's saying that uh, the Biden administration is not only making it clear that the Ukraine will get the F-16s, but he's also, they're also belittling Russian threats. It shows a, quite a high degree of confidence, doesn't it? 
It does. Phil thinks this is very significant, and I agree with him because it appears to be part of a broader calculation by the Biden administration that Russia will not use nuclear weapons. So we've had the whole issue over the last yeah, several months, of course, really pretty much since the start of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, that America is determined to avoid an escalation, and therefore they've been you know, effectively rationing the types of weapons they've been giving. Well, it's interesting that US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who's been said to be the most escalation-adverse member of the Biden government, in other words, uh, you know, one of the one of the doves as opposed to a hawk, told CNN this week that Ukrainians are more than able to attack Crimea with the weapons the US has provided. Now, that is really quite a statement because as recently as February, the rhetoric coming out of Washington, D.C. was that Ukraine might not be able to recover Crimea because it was, as they put it, a red line for Putin. Now, those fears seem to have vanished possibly because of good intelligence about the ability of the Russians to use nuclear weapons and their ability to stop them, possibly because they, they've they been having conversations with the Russians and saying this simply can't happen. The response will be, um, you know, too severe. And also possibly because uh, America might have been having dialogue with China, who we know have been restraining the Russians. So allied to the news that Ukraine will get F-16s, Phil might be right to suggest that the week Russia took Bakhmut was also the week it lost the war. Now, Patrick, you're the resident expert on the podcast on air power. You've written extensively (laughs) about it in the Second World War and also actually the whole history of the RAF. So what, tell us, is the significance of Ukraine getting F-16s? Well, I have to put my hand up here, Saul. As you well know, my expertise <laughs> stops at about 1945. It stops with a sort of Spitfire Mark 12, I think, as far as I can go. But um, I will turn to uh, an expert. I saw an interesting piece in The Telegraph by Greg Bagwell, who's a retired air marshal and uh, himself a combat pilot in the RAF. Uh, I think this sums up the uh, impact the F-16 might make. He can tell it much better than I can. And he says their arrival could well mark a turning point in the battle for supremacy in the air. Now, this is quite a thing because people have been going up and down about what difference it would actually make on the battlefield. And, and here, Greg Bagwell is telling us that it's, it's going to make a huge difference. Even though it's, you know, it's quite an elderly bit of kit now, it made its debut back in 1976, he says it's kept itself relevant and is in service with many air forces around the world. Indeed, new export models are still coming off the production line today, Um, the European models that are likely to be seen on the battlefield have all been through a midlife update and will be able to carry the most modern and capable Western weapons. So he concludes by saying it has a modern and highly capable electronic warfare suite, including detection and countermeasures for all the current Russian systems. So basically it's equipped to to, uh, perform. You know, the, the big fear was, isn't it, that any aircraft on either side that was put up anywhere around the front lines would be prey to the uh, superior ground defence forces. He's saying that's not the case with these updated F-16s. It's been the backbone, he says, of NATO's air defence for decades and will only be replaced when the F-35s are delivered over the coming years. And he concludes it will make a real difference to this conflict. So that's some encouraging news. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I, I've, I've also been looking at some of the details on this, and it, it, it's really a kind of Swiss Army knife of a fighter. As you say, Patrick, it's been around for a long time, but it's still a really excellent fighter and probably better than pretty much anything the Russians 
have got in comparison, even though it's not, you know, the absolute latest NATO aircraft. You you mentioned, of course, the F-35, but the F-16 can pretty much do everything, including, and this is quite significant, it has a an anti-missile capability and it can also take out planes that are launching missiles, ballistic missiles from long distance. A lot of the attacks that are, are coming in on Ukraine at the moment are, are being launched from distance, as we know, by strategic aircraft. The F-16 could be used to take those out. So it is going to make a big difference. Russia knows this, which is why it's still making its threats. But the point we've already made on the podcast is those threats are no longer having any effect. So watch this space as to what's going to be handed over to the Ukrainians next. Well, that's all very encouraging, as we've said, as are the extraordinary events in the Belgograd region of Russia, which we mentioned at the top, where an anti-Kremlin Russian partisan force from two groups, actually, the Russian Freedom Legion and the Russian Volunteer Force, captured at the beginning of the week a number of villages close to the Ukrainian border. A quote from the Legion was that the army of the Russian Federation could not stop a group of patriotic volunteers who took up arms and were not afraid to go against the Moscow regime for the free future of Russia. So these are Russians, and uh, obviously they've been assisted by the Ukrainians because they came across the border from Ukraine. And the attack is significant, I think, for a couple of reasons. As I say, it came from the Ukrainian side of the border and in so doing, easily penetrated Russian defences on that border with just a handful of armoured cars and at least one tank. This does not bode well, in my view, Patrick, for the ability of the Russian army to withstand Ukrainian armed forces with Western main battle tanks when the actual counteroffensive begins. But it also took Russian forces at least two days to counteract this incursion. There are reports that they have now withdrawn. The Russians say they were thrown out. And yet, at the same time, while this action was going on, it coincided with an explosion at the headquarters of the FSB, the Russian intelligence service, in Belgorod, the regional capital, and drone attacks on other government buildings and the shooting down of another Russian helicopter in the area. The Ukrainians, of course, are denying any responsibility for this attack. But do we believe them, Patrick? Uh, well, frankly, no. Just a few updates on this, actually. This is uh, Belgorod. I think I mispronounced it earlier on. Uh, The Russians are claiming that they killed 70 of the attackers uh, who made the incursion. We'll probably be hearing a bit more about that. It'll be interesting to learn something about the identities. Of course, whatever information we get from Russia will probably have to be taken with a very large chunk of salt. But no, this uh, basically has all the hallmarks of an operation that's been planned by Ukrainian military intelligence. And of course, the obvious purpose for it is to distract the Russians uh, in advance of the upcoming counteroffensive to draw troops away potentially from there. So, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty obvious ploy, isn't it, by, by the Ukrainians. And we know from the Pentagon leaks uh, recently, for example, that Ukraine has been planning an operation like this for some time. One of the documents said, uh, Ukraine provides comprehensive support to Russian volunteers ready to liberate Russian territories from uh, President Putin's tyranny by armed means. And the document even goes on to mention Bryansk, Kursk and Belgorod, where the incursion actually happened, areas as possible locations for such action. So it seems fairly clear to me that Ukraine's backing this. Why wouldn't it, frankly? OK, well, that's enough for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be answering another great crop of listeners' questions. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast. 
generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com designed for work. Welcome back to the Friday episode of the Battleground Ukraine podcast. We're now going to deal, as we always do, with listeners' questions. And the first is from Philip in Sweden. Do you think, he asked, in the coming Ukraine offensive, the goal will be to encircle large number of Russian troops at, for example, Bakhmut, or just to break through Russian lines or even into Russian soil? Uh, Patrick, what do you think? Well, as we were saying earlier, they, they have actually put themselves in quite a vulnerable situation now with this sort of salient sticking out into Ukrainian territory. But um, to, to answer specifically the question, well, encirclement, of course, is the great dream of all military planners, isn't it? So the best way of achieving a complete victory, we can both reference the German Schlieffen plan in World War One, which was designed to avoid a head-on clash with the French armies and instead to sweep round behind them, envelop them and attack the rear and the flanks. Um, it didn't work, that one, because, you know, to do that, you need huge numbers. And the entry of the Russians into the war meant that the, the Germans had to split their forces. It was more successful, of course, when they dusted off pretty much the same plan and did more or less the same thing in World War Two. But, uh, well, the way I look at it, I, I think Ukraine just doesn't have the numbers to, to carry out a big uh, envelopment of the Russians, who were anyway very spread out along a very long front line, you know, 600-odd miles of it. So what I think they will do is uh, try and punch through the lines to cut the Russian forces in two at some point in the land bridge that connects the corridor of captured Ukrainian territory uh, in the east uh, with Crimea. And there are, if you look at the map, there are various obvious points where they could do this, jumping off from Kherson towards the Sea of Azov in the south, for example, and this would, uh, but wherever they choose, I mean, if they succeed, it would have a significant strategic effect because it's going to make it much more difficult for the Russians to sustain themselves. So in military terms, be very, very effective. But it would also, I think, have a major political effect in Russia on the Kremlin's thinking and maybe even filter through to public opinion. And very importantly, it would reinforce Western support for Ukraine, which needs success to keep it going politically. It would encourage the US and Europe uh, to maintain supplies of weaponry, but also carry on giving diplomatic and political support. Okay, we've got an interesting uh, one here from Caswell Nielsen in Stony Brook, New York. And it's really about the taking of prisoners on the battlefield that we mentioned last week when we talked about the I Want to Live program that the Ukrainians have put in place, Ukrainian military intelligence again here, trying to encourage Russians who didn't want to fight to surrender. Um, and Caswell notes that during the American Civil War, African-American soldiers were massacred at Fort Pillow. That's April 1864 after surrendering. This was a tremendous mistake by the Confederates, as no black soldier was inclined to surrender after that. And as an aggregate, they fought all the more tenaciously from that point forward. Remember, Fort Pillow even became a battle cry by black soldiers for the rest of the war. Um, he goes on to say that he seems to recall, and he's right, that Neil Ferguson explored the topic of surrender in his book, The Pity of War, and made the, you know, at the time, seemingly quite shocking uh, revelation that both British and German sides uh, failed to exploit surrender and often killed people after they'd surrendered. 
Caswell goes on to say, and we agree, it is far better to welcome surrendering soldiers than either kill or punish them. If enemy soldiers surrender, few of your own men will suffer casualties while you weaken the enemy. And then he makes a final point, which is an interesting one, about desertion rates. Uh, So this is a lot of info we're getting from Caswell rather than a direct question. American desertion rates were far higher during World War II than during the Vietnam War. Now, that's a point I already made when I talked about British uh, desertion rates during the Second World War, contrary to hindsight expectations. And the understanding is that fixed rates of rotation during the Vietnam War meant the soldiers had an ability to see the end of their service, whereas during World War II, they fought for a lot longer. That's absolutely true, but it wasn't endless for American soldiers in World War II. And I know this, of course, because of my book, Devil Dogs, which is being published or at least was published in paperback yesterday. So please do go out and buy a copy of that if you'd like to, uh, available in all good bookshops. But in any case, in Devil Dogs, it's pretty clear that the system was that American servicemen would serve for two years overseas. In Vietnam, I think it was one year. So that is quite a significant difference. And there were examples where people were actually expected or did serve longer than two years overseas. In the Pacific campaign, for example, you were either supposed to do two years and or two campaigns. But there are examples of of those guys fighting for longer, particularly when they needed veterans to take a tough location like Peleliu, Iwo Jima. They were asked to stay on for those really brutal fights. And of course, a lot lost their lives. So yes, we take your point, Caswell. We absolutely agree with you. I mean, we Patrick made the point madness to to kill people who are trying to surrender and of course the whole point about the i want to live program is that it is to encourage people to give themselves up peacefully and therefore weaken the enemy's ability to fight you yeah this is linked to a similar sort of question or similar sort of point by yuso koponen from finland who um he, he makes a reference to the winter war uh, in the beginning of world war Two, but he says at the end um specific question would it make sense for Ukrainians to keep the Kerch Bridge available for civ- civilians and military to have an exit in case the other occupied areas will be liberated, uh, basically you know, allowing them an escape route? Well, I mean, just to get back to the first thing, I think the earlier point about surrender, yeah, I mean, it's, it is a quite obvious benefit, isn't it, to encourage desertion. It's a smart move. And the more the message gets across that you're going to be well-treated, uh, the better it is. And I think this is particularly relevant in the case of the Russians because the brutality of the Russian military system and culture, there's lots of convincing footage we've seen from uh, captured Russians saying how glad they are to be out of it and giving testimony that conditions they were living under were lousy, their commanders were stupid and brutal, etc. But on the second one about the escape route, I mean, I, I did reference this last week. Um, this is a tried and tested military tactic, which I observed in the southern Iraqi city of Basra in 2003, when the Brits deliberately didn't surround the city, but left the back door open, so to speak, to allow troops to flee, which they did. And the city then fell without much of a a fight. So result... Yeah, and a quick one on the Kerch Bridge. I mean, there is some logic to what Yuso said that, that, you know, it's a chance for people to withdraw across the bridge back to Russia. But of course, the Kerch Bridge is also used to bring supplies in. So it's completely logical that at the beginning of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, the Kerch Bridge will be targeted almost certainly with the missiles that 
Britain supplied to Ukraine because it's used to bring supplies in and therefore the ability for the Russians to fight and resist the counteroffensive. So you can look at it both ways, I'm afraid. And I, I suspect the Ukrainians are going to be quite ruthless about this, as indeed they must be in an existential war of the type they're fighting. Just another quick point. Um, we're going to talk, uh, we've had an interesting question about brimstone missiles, which we'll come on to, but just a really broader point about the Ukrainian counteroffensive. I suspect they're going to unleash the, their full arsenal of Western weapons, many of which have not been used that much or have been used very sparingly. And there is a reason for that, because they're going to use them all at one time to to attack all these command posts, these these ammunition depots, these supply routes, and probably the Kerch Bridge too. Yeah, so shock and awe coming their way, it would seem. Um now, we've had a question from Barney in Auckland, New Zealand, who's talking about the aftermath of the war, which is probably something that we don't actually devote as much time as, as we should to thinking about, talking about. He, he's asking, what, does the, what will the post-war Ukraine look like? And he says, whichever way it goes, Ukraine, he thinks, will be economically devastated, socially traumatized, and uh, there'll be big political consequences from the conflict. And he's basically asking, do, you know, how do you think it's going to play out? How do we, what can we do in the West to ensure that post-war Ukraine, in whatever form it takes, will actually be getting the support it needs, given that the West's history of nation building is rather checkered? Well, uh, what I'd, I would completely agree with you, uh, Barney, there about the West not having proved to be very good uh, at na- nation building. We're all obviously thinking about Iraq. But I think in the case of Iraq and the case of Ukraine are very different. In Iraq, it was a huge ask to actually try and build a nation there in the first place, given the fundamentally divided religious tribal nature of the society, the enormous hostility and suspicion between the Sunnis and the Shias, no uh, history at all of democracy, acceptance of the need for, for compromise, which is at the, uh, at the heart of it. But I think in, the, in Ukraine, the West doesn't need to do any nation building uh, because the nation has already been constructed. Now, Ukraine too has a complicated makeup in terms of different identities and traditions, etc. But since getting uh, independence or semi-independence from the, the old Soviet Union back in 1991, as a result of a referendum, it, it should be remembered, this is something that's often overlooked, particularly by people who think that uh, we shouldn't be supporting Ukraine. Um, but since that time, it's become an ever more cohesive nation. And this war has finished the job of solidifying that national identity and creating a proud and patriotic country. But I do agree uh, that post-war, it's going to be very tough for Ukraine, whatever happens, rebuilding the infrastructure, all the destruction, but also the healing of the massive trauma that's been done to the entire people, not just the soldiers, everyone has suffered in some way or another. And um, there have been some warnings about the nature of the state that emerges from all this, not least from our big interview guest this week, Anatole Levin, who was suggesting that we may well be seeing a rather sort of militaristic setup. Certainly, there's going to be a lot of uh, hostility to Russia. That's very understandable, I think. And there's going to be a lot of political restructuring. I don't think any of us would be surprised if some of the military heroes of the conflict uh, don't appear on the on the military scene quite rapidly. I'm particularly thinking of uh, the intelligence chief, Kirill Budanov. We're going to be coming on to Anatole or returning to uh, Anatole Levin later. We've had a bit of a post bag raising some sort of uh, objections to what he said. Uh, we'll be talking about that later, but I think it is worthwhile having an alternative voice 
in the big interview rather than setting up a kind of, you know, rather kind of monotone pro-Ukrainian position all the time, even though that's where we stand. It is good to hear the other side now and again. Okay, Simon Muir, um, this this links into my point about the sort of consequences or at least the significance of the attack into Russia by these Russian partisans recently. He asked about the formidable Russian defences along the length of 1,000 kilometres comprising trenches, mines and dragon teeth anti-tank obstacles. It feels like an enormous exercise in itself for an army that has not displayed a mastery of logistics and supply chain management. And also he asked, what is the technical engineering approach taken by an arm of a battalion that needs to break through these defences whilst presumably under fire? Well, we're, we're not going to get into the detail of that simply because, Simon, we don't have that sort of technical knowledge about an ar- how an army does that. But you're absolutely right. It, it uses engineers to get through these obstacles. Uh, meanwhile, it's protecting itself with armor and uh, armored vehicles. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty encouraged by what's happened in the North. Now, you may say, well, their strongest defenses weren't there, but that's the whole point about defenses. They can't be strong everywhere. And even where they've got these layers of minefields and dragon's teeth and anti-tank obstacles, I doubt very much, and we will see uh, in the weeks to come, that they are going to prove to be that a significant obstacle with the sort of firepower that we know the Ukrainians have been building up and the planning, frankly. They can see through their intelligence provided by the Americans exactly where the weak points are, and that is where they they are going to be probing without question. So um, if Simon's implying that he's not terribly convinced the Russians are capable of building this sophisticated defensive system, I have to say I rather agree with him. A question here for John Ryan in Dublin. He's talking about Donald Trump's boast that he would end the war in 24 hours. Now, John's speculating about what a deal, a Trump-style deal could be. And uh, he's suggesting it might be something like this, that basically uh, you look at the uh, 2022 pre-invasion map and say to Putin, okay, withdraw behind this line, return all prisoners and kidnap children, or we're going to flood, i.e. the Americans, we're going to flood Ukraine with weapons, including F-16s and long-range missiles. Now, the the offer to Zelensky would be, okay, accept this and you'll get NATO and EU membership. That will be fast-tracked and we will guarantee that the redrawn borders of Ukraine, i.e. minus the areas that uh, the Russians have already gone into from 2014 onwards, we will guarantee those borders. And if you refuse that, the American aid will dry up. And John's asking, do you think such an approach would work? Well, my immediate thought is maybe you should be there, John, sort of uh, behind the scenes uh, when the negotiations, if they ever begin. Um, But for me, this leaves out two key things for the Ukrainians. Maybe you could talk about the Russians, uh, Saul. But, you know, war crimes, that is a big, big part of of what the Ukrainians will be looking and indeed the world will be looking for. And also reparations. You can't just go into your neighboring country, smash the place to pieces and not expect to have to pay something for it. And I think those might be deal breakers for Putin. Yeah. And on that subject, actually, of, of you know, uh, war crimes and, and Putin paying the price, we, of course, had the interview, uh, the big interview a few weeks ago, the two experts in the International Criminal Court in the, the Hague saying that one day Putin will pay the price in their view. And, you know, both of us may have thought at the time, well, actually, is that likely? But who knows? I mean, it could easily happen. And very interesting um, information coming out of South Africa this week, where, of course, the BRICS meeting, which includes Russia, is due to take place in the foreseeable future. And actually, the South Africans are beginning to row back on their uh, formerly sort of pro or at least neutral uh, in, in relation to Russian position by saying that 
they don't think it would be a very good idea for Putin to attend because they may feel, you know, by South African law, they may feel duty bound to arrest him. So this is quite a significant turn of events. And, and it gives you an indication that even a power that is not particularly hostile to Russia may feel, given that ruling by the International Criminal Court, uh, that actually uh, there are places that Putin can no longer travel to. And that is pretty humiliating, but also it affects, uh, you know, his ability to project Russian power internationally and, frankly, weakens his position at home. So very interesting development there. Yeah, that's pretty encouraging. Just wanted to mention one here from Simon Fitton, who was talking about last week, I was talking about, you know, historical analogies of what the the Russians are actually doing. I I was actually comparing it to the German invasion of Poland and saying that the difference being that instead of uh, Polish resistance crumbling uh, within a few weeks, uh, that they're still there a year later on. It was rather a complicated analogy. Anyway, Simon's mentioning that, yeah, we've sort of forgotten that Russia actually had the deal in place with Germany before the Germans attacked Poland and waited for a couple of weeks before they went in to bite off their big chunk of Polish territory so that the Germans would actually get the blame, which is kind of historically more or less what's happened. And that made me sort of think about something that I've been reflecting on. And that is that I think one of the casualties of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is that it's causing us to rethink our attitude towards the Red Army. The fact that the Russians ultimately defeated the Germans, you know, we, we owe them for the huge sacrifices they've made to defeat Nazism has been a huge reputational gain for Russia down the years. Mm. And I think that that's meant that historically we've been quite kind uh, towards the Russians as a consequence, and we've tended to overlook the atrocities they committed. The mass rapes and murders of German women on the march to Berlin is a, is a huge and ugly example. But I think there's now going to be a bit of an evaluation going on. And I, at least, am beginning to see the atrocities and the contempt for human life that we've seen in Ukraine on the part of the Russians as part of a kind of Russian tradition. What do you think, Saul? Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and frankly, Patrick, recent scholarship has been moving against the uh, the argument that the Russians won the Second World War. It's very much been moving to the angle, which is that in the end, American economic and military might was the key factor. The support given to Russia in vehicles, but also in economic assistance, tipped the balance in the East. And yes, of course, they lost most of the bodies. Of course, they've done exactly the same at Bakhmut. But, you know, do you congratulate a leader like Stalin? Because he's prepared literally to sacrifice millions of his countrymen in pursuit of victory. Uh, Far better to fight the war in the way the Americans did. Yes, they lost troops when they had to fight, particularly in the Pacific. But generally speaking, the idea is you use technology and power, economic and military power to win a war. And that's ultimately why Phil has been saying since the beginning of this conflict that Russia can't win because it's up against a much more Uh, sophisticated and effective military power. That's the West backing the Ukrainians who also have the the ingenuity and the nimbleness to fight and and adapt on the battlefield. So that will be the the crucial factor in this war. And it's about to be played out, as we keep saying. Okay, we've got a fascinating uh, little uh, point of information here from Nick Kiff, who says, did you know that there are two British World War I Mark V tanks on display in Lukensk. I came across these on a visit I made there in the early 2000s. Imagine my surprise as I was being shown around and turned a corner to come across these. 
Nick asks, do you think the Russians will resort to these if they become desperate? <laughs> when will we see them in the Donbass? Wow, that's that's amazing. And this is really a, a kind of early version of the tank, isn't it, that they, the Mark V saw? You seen, you know a bit about this. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a little bit about this in the in the Battle of Amiens, which is when they were used very effectively, actually. I mean, the tanks have got a bad name for their use in the First World War. Uh, you know, they're first used in 1916, as is well known, on the Somme. And again in Cambrai, where there's a massive breakthrough using tanks. But the problem with tanks in the First World War is they tended to break down very quickly. The Mark V was the best tank. And actually, by the end of the uh, First World War, Britain had far and away the most sophisticated, armoured capability of all the combatants which is what makes the fact that Germany's use of tanks in the start of the Second World War so effective in the campaign that you've already referenced in the Ardennes. You know, people were saying, well, hold on, it should, the British should have been at the forefront of this. But we, we very much allowed that capability to wither on the vine and, you know, and we're playing catch up. In actual fact, the armoured uh, divisions, British armoured divisions, and of course, American armoured divisions by the end of the war were very effective, but it took a while to get them up to speed. But I've had a look at the pictures that Nick sent through, and they are indeed those same tanks that were used at Amiens in 1918. No turrets on the top, of course, you know, the, the turret is effectively inside the tank, you've got the track really going the whole length or height of the of the tank. So they look a bit weird in relation to, the, to modern tanks. Could we see them on the battlefield? Well, I wouldn't put it past the Russians, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> I know we're having a bit of fun with this, but crikey, they've been bringing out T-62s, you know, which are 30, 40, 50 years old. So, so who knows? They might get desperate enough. Are they going to need them? I suspect they might well be needing them. Uh, very interesting speculation here from Chloe, who asks if we noted a BBC report which says that Kiev's defence minister says Ukrainian pilots are looking forward to starting their training on fighter jets. They will now be able to support their brothers and sisters in arms on land and on sea, in a, emphasised, to win this war. Now, Chloe is a maritime lawyer in Edinburgh. And so uh, this this attracted her attention. And her her question is, could the defence minister, Reznico, be dropping a hint here? And what information do we have about the West's support for Ukraine's on-sea efforts? She says, could this be a key element of surprise in the upcoming attack? Now, this is something that, that um, you often uh, talk about, Saul, isn't it? You know, the role of uh, the you know, looking at the, at the map, you know, the Black Sea and all the rest of it. Is this going to be a, a part of the battlefield, do you think, in the upcoming offensive? Undoubtedly. Uh, and a little hint actually appeared uh, in, I think it was in the Telegraph this week, talking about the Toloka TLK-150 underwater drone. And interestingly enough, so we, we've kind of hinted that some of Ukraine's capability with maritime drones, possibly supplied by the British Special forces possibly by the americans but actually apparently the taloka is the first underwater drone to be designed and built entirely in ukraine product of a new military civilian partnership called bravel and a quote from a naval analyst is russia has a new problem in the black sea it's this taloka tl K-150, which it describes as a loitering torpedo. So this can be you. It, 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 it attacks underwater, not, not on the surface, which most of the drones up till now have done. And it can attack shipping with quite a significant warhead. So this is a real threat to any use of Russian ships in the Black Sea. And we may well be seeing this being used in the uh, weeks and months to come. OK, we've got a question from Neil Warrender. Uh, he's a Canadian, Calgary, Alberta. And his question is about brimstone missiles. Back in November, there was an announcement that the UK was sending hundreds of these weapons to Ukraine. 
I had never heard of them before, but they were described as being able to communicate with each other after launch and self-prioritize between multiple targets. To me, this sounded unique and sophisticated and something that, if not a game changer, would at least move the needle for the Ukrainians. I am puzzled that since the initial announcement, I have heard literally zero about brimstones. And he's asking, were they ever sent? Have they been used, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I did a little bit of digging in into this on uh, YouTube, the favored way to find information about the war. And it's interesting that as recently as January, Britain sent an extra 600 brimstones. So it had already sent the first batch of brimstones. Uh, so what are they? They're a seek and destroy anti-armor guided weapon that was originally designed to be launched from planes, entered service in the 1990s, but has now been adapted for use from the ground. There's also a maritime variant. Going back to our previous question, the UK might have provided that. It's certainly provided brimstone one and two, the brimstone two being the more sophisticated version There is a video on YouTube that shows the Ukrainians have adapted a ground-based launcher, and they have actually, bits of them have been found on the battlefield itself. So they've almost certainly been used, but not much. So what actually are they for? Well, anti-armor, as I've already mentioned. So basically, it's a more effective weapon than the the shoulder-launched Enlaw and various other systems that we've already provided, which are very good themselves. But this brimstone has a range of 12 to 20 miles, and it can be launched, as uh, Neil's already pointed out, in salvo. So you send up two or three, you're up against, I don't know, four or five tanks, and literally they can seek out separate targets, uh, and they won't all go into the same one. So it's an incredibly effective system. Why haven't we seen more of these being used? Because they're almost certainly being held back. That's why. Um, But of course, also, Russian armor has pretty much kept a a low profile on the battlefield. But as the counteroffensive unfolds, I suspect we will be seeing these and many other weapons, including the Storm Shadow, uh, coming out of the cupboard and onto the battlefield. I seem to remember brimstones being used in Afghanistan. Does that sound right to you? I mean, obviously not against armor, but uh, to take out like sort of Taliban mortar positions. I mean, they had a hell of a lot of kit that was uh, designed for much more sophisticated targets, but they were still using them there. So that that might indeed have been the case. Okay, I've got a, uh, one here from Richard Hudson, who I believe is an old school friend of yours all. And he's saying that he was very moved by the Mark Neville interview uh, recently and returning to the subject of what people can do to actually aid the Ukrainian effort be it on the humanitarian front uh, or the military front. Now, I know Richard's been involved in, in efforts to support Ukraine, uh, and he's saying if you do want to help, I know we've had a lot of addresses for people to go to, but uh, this is a UK one, and uh, he, he's drawing our attention to an outfit called City Hub Ukraine. Their address is cityhubukraine22 at gmail.com. And they're collating mostly humanitarian aid, clothing, I believe. I think uh, Richard and his wife sent out a generator via them. And he's saying, if you, if you want to help, uh, that's another address to go to. Yeah. Hello, Richard. I mean, it has been many years. He's absolutely right. We were uh, briefly schoolmates at Amberforth College in North Yorkshire. That was an awful long time ago, but it's tremendous to hear the work you're doing, Richard. So do keep up the good work. We hope uh, one or two people will donate to City Hub Ukraine. And it's great to hear that 36 articulated lorries worth of donations, including a four by four and an ambulance have recently gone out under the uh, aegis of City Hub Ukraine. So, so great stuff and keep up the good work. 
Okay, Patrick mentioned earlier um, the fact that one or two people are responding to the Anatole Levin interview, in particular Blanade. Uh, he's not very happy with what he heard. Uh, that's the whole point. We need to get a little bit of debate going. I mean, Patrick and I, I have to say, feel, a, you know, a, a tiny bit of regret at, at the sort of, how can I put it, the sort of positive comments we, we were coming out with at the end of that interview, because I think everyone on this podcast knows what we feel about the war and the, our absolute determination to see it through to the end for Ukraine. There is an element of rail politic that always comes into play. Whether whether the Ukrainians will be able to recover all their territory, we don't know. I think I think one point that Anatole made that I do still agree with is that in the long term, Ukraine's security is paramount and it needs to find a way to get a solution that allows it to uh, make sure that its borders are secure in the future. And the best way, of course, is to become a member of NATO. So it needs to have a political system that is is stable and solid, and it needs to have borders that it's happy with and that Russia in some ways is forced probably, but has to accept, uh, you know, cannot be violated in the future. So, you know, whether that means that it's going to be able to recover all its territory, well, we absolutely hope it will. We, we mentioned at the beginning of the pod, of course, that the Americans are now saying you can use our weapons to re- recover crime here because they're not concerned about escalation. Anatole kept, you know, is very concerned himself about escalation. He even posited at one point during uh, the interview the possibility that Russia might actually win the war. We, we can't see that as, as a possibility in the slightest. And we don't think escalation's a problem either, as we've been seeing for many weeks now. So no, we don't agree with everything Anatole said, but uh, it is important, I think, that we have these diverse opinions. So what exactly did uh, Blanard say? Well, he said, enjoy the podcast, but very frustrating to hear hear the interview with Anatole. He took issue with a commentary on the Ukrainian media. Media in the middle of an invasion is going to be different than other times. How can you ask people to defend territory, launch counteroffensives and risk death while simultaneously promoting compromise, peace talks, the sacrifice of territory and highlighting political divisions? It's idiotic. Um, we rather agree. So Anatole was making the point that, uh, you know, there was an element of propaganda. Well, of course there was. And there is. I mean, you know, we go back to the Second World War, Patrick. We've spoken about this before. The British government kept a very tight leash on public opinion and the media for the very good reason that it was felt, you know, you don't give the enemy any solace uh, and it's all part of the same war effort and and exactly the same thing's been going on in Ukraine. Have you got any thoughts, Patrick, after the event about the Anatole Levin interview? Yeah, I mean, like you, I think our natural good manners meant we went a bit easy uh, in our post-interview uh, comments, but it has made me try and uh, look a bit deeper at what it is that the, the people who are less supportive of Ukraine than we are are getting at. And they they often sort of equate um, support for Ukraine with uh, warmongering. They kind of make out that people who uh, are in favor of a decisive Ukrainian victory are somehow enjoying what's going on. I think that's so completely not the case. You get people like Peter Hitchens, in my view, rather absurd kind of uh, commentator on, on the war. Um, and it seems to me that I think anyone who, who knows a bit about warfare, people like us who, who actually study it and write about it for a living, that um, in this case, the more complete the Russian defeat is, the better the chances are for a, a lasting peace. So I think that's at the bottom uh, of our support for Ukraine. And I think that, yes, it's, it's good to have a, a more sophisticated and nuanced and distanced view of what's going on. But I think putting pressure on Ukraine to reach a, a swift compromise with Russia is, is not uh, a good policy. 
Well, we'll just end on a slightly lighter note in terms of comments from listeners. Uh, And this is a a lovely message that's come in from a man called Paul Parsons. And he says he's just finished listening to today's excellent episode. That's last week's, of course, last Friday. And if Saul or Patrick are interested, I plan to take out a convoy of five vehicles to Lviv on the 5th of August, and they are welcome to drive one of them with us. This will be my third trip. And the link to our Just Giving site gives an idea of what we are doing and is attached for information. And it's www.justgiving.com justgiving.com forward slash crowdfunding forward slash Ukraine AI drive August question mark UTM. So that's a bit of a business. But if you put in or at least if you try and go to that that site, you'll get the information from Paul. And Patrick, what do you think? Yeah, I'm free in August. So I think this is getting closer and closer, isn't it? Yeah, well, I'm up for it. Okay, great stuff. Well, we'll we'll get back to Paul. We may be on the road in August. Uh, Watch this space. Obviously, a lot can happen between then and now, uh, but it may be that Patrick and I are actually going to bring a couple of episodes from Ukraine itself. We'll see. Okay, before we go, I should just reiterate that Saul's got a new book out, the paperback of his latest very well-received book, Devil Dogs, which is the story of a company of US Marines fighting its way through the Pacific in the Second World War. It was published this week uh, in paperback at 9.99. So do buy a copy. It's available on Amazon and of course in your local bookshops including in the US. That's all for us this week. We actually got a great interview next week uh, or next Wednesday we'll be welcoming back uh, Lieutenant Colonel Pavlo Kazan of the Ukrainian Army. He's been on before. He's a very popular guest so that's it for us this week see you next week goodbye